we have been going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, and so I like it. We're going to keep doing that until uh, Jesus comes back, or I pass away, or God moves me on. Uh, not in 1 Corinthians, but through uh, different parts of Scripture. It just helps us, I think, to get immersed in the way that the Bible wants us to think and be. And uh, it sometimes challenges us in ways that we need to be challenged in uh, thinking about how to be scriptural Christians and not cultural Christians. So 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, the, uh, beginning with verse 25, says, Now concerning virgins, okay, <laughs> that's what it says. I thought about that all week. That's how it starts out. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord and his mercy in his mercy has made trustworthy. So what we've said before when Paul says something like that, when he says, I have no commandment from the Lord, what he's saying is Jesus did not directly speak to what we're about to talk about. He didn't say anything plainly related to what I'm, we're going to treat here. However, we know from our perspective that Paul was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And so what he has given to us is sacred. It's in God's sacred word. So don't be confused when you see him say that kind of thing because he says it several times in uh, 1 Corinthians. He says, I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress that I suppose, therefore, it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman carry, cares excuse me, about the things of the Lord, that, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of her youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of the Lord. So we know that when he closes that section, he's using the same sort of understanding that uh, Christ didn't speak specifically to this. However, 
I, I think this is God's purpose as I understand him as a prophet and apostle of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that it gives us uh, passages like this that when we read them for the first time, they feel like an enigma to us. And yet, as we wade in, we see that there are purposes carefully crafted in the heart of God, eternal in their understanding and purpose and in the way that they have been given to shape and direct our lives. So I pray that we'll approach your word in just that way, understanding that you have revealed to us your will, that your will is perfect, and that it doesn't change uh, time, time after time, and as history changes, that it remains the same, that you remain the same. And so we pray that you'll speak to us from this text today, and we pray it in Christ's name, amen. The first thing that uh, you do if you uh, undertake to go to Bible college or seminary is to take a, a course, usually you'll take a course called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is about principles of Bible interpretation. And so even if you never went to seminary, everybody ought to have some thoughts about when I read the Bible, how do I interpret it? How do I take what it says? And we know that it was written like 2,000 years ago. That what we're reading was originally the context for it happened about 2,000 years ago. And so when we're, what we're trying to do is read into this passage and see how does it help me and direct me now. And so when I read this passage this week, I've got a book in my office that was one of the textbooks that was used while I was in seminary. And it, it's called uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's written by... Two guys, Fee and Stewart, both of them professors, and they have a whole chapter on just how to interpret 1 Corinthians. Because 1 Corinthians has a lot of uh, things that when we read them, we say, okay, we don't do that anymore. For example, we're going to get to a part where it says, women, when you come to church, you should cover your head. Does anybody ever cover their head? Any of you ladies? Nobody in this room has covered their head. Sometimes folks will. But why? Why don't we cover our heads now? Why, why did they say do that then, but we don't do it now? That is, when you read the Bible, you, part of our task in interpreting it is thinking deeply about the, what's in the text and what's there. And so there, we'll look at those kinds of things, but what you have to assume when you read the Bible is that some things are time-bound. They're bound in the context of that immediate situation, and some things are eternal and transcendent, and they'll always be true, and you always follow a particular practice. So when I read this uh, passage, as I read it over and over this week, going back to it again and again, one of the most obvious questions to me is when he says, because of this present crisis, there's something in mind there, you know, and that's one thing we want to think about. What does he mean by that when he says, because of this present crisis? And is the advice that he gives to them about the unmarried, that's probably the word to use in place of virgin in the text, is the unmarried, those who have uh, not yet uh, uh, taken a husband or a wife, because he ch changes from talking about unmarried maidens to talking about men who are also unmarried in the passage. So is his advice time-bound or is it transcendent, is it eternal? And how does it connect to what 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7 has already said? So you have to think about what he's already said in chapter 7 to 
see the big picture here because he said things, for example, like to husbands, you don't, you're, you don't possess your body apart from consideration to your wife. You are one flesh. You belong to one another now that you're married. Same thing to the wife. He said to the wife, you belong to each other. So we're going to read something in this passage that makes it sound as... He says at a point, you who are... If you have a wife, you should be as though what? You had no wife. He says that. But he's already said you can't uh, treat your spouse slightingly or uh, unimportantly. So how do you make those things work out? So that's our task today. And I have to say it was challenging this week in, in looking at this passage and trying to understand exactly what it said. And then how does it relate to the idea that Christ is returning? Because we see that in this passage also. And I think one thing we should see is he's going to talk to us in this passage about what we're preoccupied with. What is it that you think about? In your life, day after day, moment by moment, what are you engaged in? And how, how does it relate to God's purpose in the bigger picture? And so I would encourage you, after we've looked at this today, go back and read all of chapter 7 again, just to remind yourself. You remember what we said now about these three contexts, context, and context, and the greatest of these is context. So the key to not mistreating the Bible and making it say something it never meant to say is by remembering that this chapter has a context, this book has a context. The Old and New Testaments have unique contexts. And so we have to think about that if we're serious about reading Scripture. So 1 Corinthians is what's called an occasional letter or a situational letter, which means it was written to a particular occasion. And you'll notice in this group of verses that we're reading today, he is answering a question. And we've seen that already, that at times he says, now about this, that's what he's doing. When he says, now concerning virgins or the unmarried maidens among you, that's an answer to a question. So he's thinking through and replying to something that he's been asked in this passage. That's why they call it uh, situational, because it's, it has a context, it's unique, it's in a city among a group of people who he is replying to in this, uh, in this epistle. So when we understand their situation, one thing we know is their par- there may or may not be parallels that are identical for us. They, there may be, but there may not be. Uh, in fact, one of the quotes from uh, that book, How to Read the Bible uh, for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart, they say there's no such thing as a divinely ordained culture. Have you ever thought about that? He says, there's no such thing as a divinely ordained culture. The first century, they say, varies uh, in many ways from the 21st. They said the 20th century because that's when the book was written, but the 21st century. So the first century culture varies in a lot of ways from the 21st century culture. And you could say even uh, cultures in the 21st century vary from one another. And if you go town to town, what is a culture? It's the way we do things. That's what it is. So if you went from here to another state, you'll find that uh, particular cities and states have distinctives about how things are there. 
So the culture will vary at times, and he's just addressing some things that were true about their situation. But, as we'll see, some of the implications are non-negotiable and eternal. But it's an interesting thought that we, you know, when we think about culture and how it is read into Scripture and how we take what's in here and figure out what part of this has a practical application to me right now in my life. So that's part of this that you have to think about. Anybody that reads this passage, to me, if you don't read it the first time confused, I, I don't know what you're doing. It confused me. So I, when I read it, I'm like, okay, what's underneath this? Where does God want us to go with this in our life? And some things are explicit and obvious, but they just disagree with the way we understand things as a society. But there are parts of it, too, that just confuse us because we don't know first century manners and customs. And so that's part of 1 Corinthians that we'll keep seeing. And we just need to be conscious of it. So the uh, task that we have, if we're interested in studying the Bible, is to wade into these things. You're going to have to. And the, the, it means that we've got a complicated task. Each time you open the Bible, it is a complicated task that you have in trying to read it and, and understand what idioms and practices are time-bound, which ones are eternal, what is it God, you know, people get confused. Sometimes I remember hearing a conversation recently, we were, talk, we were talking about human sexuality. That's what we're talking about again here. It's a good thing that's, you know, irrelevant and doesn't matter to us now, right? I mean, no, we, we eat and breathe this stuff all the time trying to figure out What's appropriate? What are the standards that God has for human sexuality and, and personality? And so, you know, I was talking to somebody recently, and they are like, yeah, you guys uh, don't believe in this expression of human sexuality, but you eat shellfish and stuff like that that the Bible says don't do. And, and you know, you have to think about those kinds of issues if you're going to have intelligent conversations with people that are pushing back against biblical ideas and norms. And, of course, the truth is Jesus gave us himself, and he became the norm. He is the norm in the New Testament, and he became the fulfillment of all the things that God was setting in place in the Old Testament. But when you read the New Testament, you, you find that it still very specifically speaks to roles and the way that God made man and woman. And so that's not a throwaway issue ever. It's eternal and timeless. So as we you know, look at this passage, what, it's a complicated combination of particular circumstances and issues that we're going to face anywhere at any time. So let's look at this. I felt like my outline looked like a Jeopardy categories this week instead of like the usual kind of thing. But, so the first thing that we'll look at is discipleship and unmarried people for $100, okay? Discipleship and unmarried people. That's the first part of this in verses 25 through 28. So the, it speaks here about it, concerning the unmarried maiden. I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment. He says, I've received mercy. He's been put into this role to provide a systematic theology for the church. That's what Paul is doing. In a lot of these letters, he's given to us a framework of understanding who God is and relating to God in Christ. So you see that here. 
And he says, I suppose that it's good because of the present distress. So we have to think, what is the present distress? What does he mean by that? And so there's a crisis. And when you read commentators, you have to think about history. What was going on in the world in Macedonia? That's where they were. That constituted a crisis. And the best I can tell from reading all the commentaries and online articles and going into my Bible software is they don't know. They don't know what crisis he has in mind. They're not sure, you know, what he's actually referring to when he says that there's, there's a crisis that is affecting your thinking about the unmarried and what they should do. But we know that's what he's talking about. There's a crisis that affects you if you're a single person, unmarried, as to how you ought to think about marriage in this situation. So he is referring to a question that's been posed to him. What should the behavior of unmarried people be regarding this present, present distress? So is he talking about the return of the Lord? Is that what we're getting into here? That's how I frame this message because of some other things. But is that what he's saying here? Is like the Lord is about to return, so consequently you're better off not getting married? I don't think so because if so, he was wrong. You know, the Lord didn't return in their lifetime. If he gave advice to these people and said, don't get married because Christ is going to return, Christ didn't return in their lifetime, and so it would not have been true to say that to them. So I do think the disciples in the first century lived with the understanding that Jesus could return at any time. That there was absolutely nothing after Jesus was resurrected that interfered with their ability, with his ability to return for them. And we've talked about how that Jesus ascended, the Bible says, from the Mount of Olives. The disciples were standing there with slack jawed, you remember? Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The Bible says that an angel standing there, Why do you stand gazing heavenward? The same Jesus, in like manner, will return to receive you. So they lived with the expectation of Jesus' imminent return. They knew that he would return. I don't think it's unrealistic that they might have thought he could return in their lifetime. They didn't know, just like we don't know. But we live in anticipation of his return. So even if it's not that that's before us in this passage, life is always full of stress and distress. I mean, who could live through the last two years on planet Earth and not think about how stress encroaches on your life? You know, we've lived through something that we're going to tell our grandchildren about, maybe, and they'll never believe it. You know, the fact that you got stuck in your house for three months and couldn't go outside. Or most of us, you know, were sheltered in place. And definitely your life was disrupted in a way that you never experienced in your whole life before now. That's, you know, a kind of global distress. And there have been other things like that. I'm, you know, of an age, I had an uncle uh, who was sent to Vietnam probably some of you had relatives or maybe you yourself you know went to Vietnam and I can remember him coming home you know when I was a little kid like seven eight years old I remember my uncle coming home from Vietnam and I remember what the world was like enough to know that our culture experienced a tremendous upheaval and distress and 
we've, we hear about Black Fridays, right, where their economic collapses. And we know people like my parents, my dad was a child of the Great Depression, you know, grew up poor with a huge family. And, you know, everybody was experiencing the world as stress and distress. And so there are historical moments and eras where there's social disruption. You know, think of what it would be like to live in the Ukraine today, to now. You know, their life feels like the, the, uh, they're immersed in trauma. They're immersed in disruption. And, you know, it's unimaginable for us, in a sense, to think about what they're going through. But I think when he talks about their current distress, it was probably something that was unique to them. But then again, everybody is going to experience something, perhaps, in their lifetime, or maybe a lot of somethings that feel disruptive and distressing, whether it's economic, whether it's political failure, whether it's the president being impeached, whatever it is. We all have stuff like that that we could relate to and say, man, this is, uh, you know, imp- it presses in on us in a unique sort of way. And so when we read about what Paul is saying to them, we know that it is tied up in the idea of some current distress. We know that it's tied up in the idea of their marital status that they were, uh, he's writing to the unmarried. What do we do, given our current situation of distress? And we know that, because we've talked about this already in this chapter, Paul himself was a a single adult. And so was Jesus, we said before. Both were single adults. And so here's what he says to them from his vantage point and experience that his singleness for him has made his life as a missionary uncomplicated. That's one thing that's plain in this passage. He says, my singleness I take to be an advantage in his situation. And he commends that understanding to other people. He says, "Now, but but what else does he say? If you're married now, this advice does not apply to you. It doesn't apply to you. But you singles, he's saying, you, you should think about the advantage of your singleness if God gives you grace to remain in it. And he doesn't discourage people away from marriage either. So there's, that's why I say when you read the Bible, be prepared to deal with tension. Be prepared to deal with complication. Don't think you're reading something that's simple. It's not simple. It, you know, it looks at a lot of variables that are important to us. But what he, what he is saying here is, as a single person, my mindset is that it, I'm able to be an effective missionary because I'm not married. Now, what, it's interesting because in the next couple of chapters, he's going to make an argument. And his argument is, I have a right to take along a wife with me if I choose to. So it's just fascinating when you read this and you're trying to understand what it's, you know, saying to us that we can take away. But, and here's where I landed when I was reading this. As I read the verses, it occurs to me that many people who claim to be following Jesus have a failure in our life in just the area that he's raising up as being very important. And that is that we do not see ourselves as missionaries. We don't see ourselves as missionaries. We don't see ourselves. Just last week we talked about being called. 
We said God's called us. He's put a calling on your life. You think, no, he called the pastor and staff and stuff like that. But the Bible says he called you. And here, when I, if I was trying to take away something big from this passage, here's what it is. That most Christians don't view ourselves as having a missionary calling. And in a society like ours, where more and more people are drifting away from godliness and drifting away from uh, church and drifting away from God and secular in their mindset, the only way that there's going to be a shift among the people that God puts you in touch with is if we begin to view ourselves as missionaries. If we begin to say, like Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Send me, God. Send me to my neighbor. Send me to my family. Send me to my co-worker. Send me to my school. That's what I think is in this passage, is the reality that he's saying to those singles, you have an advantage in your singleness that a married person is going to have less of an advantage in. And we're, we'll unpack that a little more. But that's the fundamental part about this. It's almost as if we Christians have forgotten about eternity. Eternity. When we, we think about people's lives, they have an expiration date. All of us. It's appointed to man to die once and after this, the Bible says, judgment. It's appointed to man to die once and after this, judgment. Everybody is going off to their destiny. And God has already made the way for people to be forgiven. Isn't that great? All we have to do is say yes to God's great gift. He's already made the provision. He's done it for us. Couldn't do it ourselves. In His kindness and mercy, Jesus came. And He took on our sins and He was punished in our place. And He's raised gloriously from the grave. And he lives, he lives, and he, he, he's, the Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart for the world. God's heart for the world is he wants everybody in relationship with him forgiven, free. And, and we forget about eternity. Our society can't see the, beyond the immediate to the ult, uh, ultimate, right? The people around us, they're just going through their paces and doing their thing. They can't see beyond the immediate to the ultimate, ultimate, but we know there's an ultimate. We know that beyond just getting up and going to work, beyond just having kids and, you know, doing sports and doing the things that are part of life, there's something more than that. We know that. We know that there's some, someone who is beyond that that's ultimate, that created us and made us, for himself, And the Bible is very clear that the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal, it says. See, that's the, the, our society, a person that doesn't know God, they, they have it turned just exactly inside out, don't they? They think all the stuff around me, this is the permanent stuff. This is real. The Bible says the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. Therefore, we walk by faith and not by sight. That's how we're, you know, we're to live. And so the first part of this, when he talks about discipleship and unmarried people, I think this is what he's saying, that you know they had a crisis that was happening. In the middle of that, he's encouraging them to think as missionaries, to see God's big picture. 
But secondly, the passage talks about kingdom mindfulness for all people. In verses 29 through 31, he, he uh, goes on there and he says, But this I say, the time, brethren, the time is short, or some translations will say the time is shortened. shortened. And so we think about that, what does he mean? What does he mean the time is short or shortened? Well, it's just, you know, practically true about all of our lives. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Now is your salvation nearer than when you first believed. Now is your salvation nearer than when you first believed. Well, if you think about your life, if it was a calendar that you were marking down X's to some termination date, it's just practically true that now your salvation is nearer than I believed it, first believed in 1987. Now my salvation is nearer than when I first believed. And life is shortened, it's truncated, and uh, it's uh, brief. The, you, you remember how James put it? He says, what is your life? It's as a vapor that appears for a very short time and then passes away. Now, when you're 13 or 18, it's hard to believe that. It's hard to believe my life will pass as a vapor. But the older we get, the more we're like, yeah, from this vantage point where I know more of my life has passed by than is ahead of me, it's, it's shortened. And, you know, it's possible that they just, they had that, you know, understanding that Christ may interrupt everything at any minute. Well, that's still true. It was true then. It's true now. But life is short. Time is short. And you'll have what will have seemed to be a vapor to, in the end to live for matters of eternal significance. In the, in the end, it will have seemed like a vapor. But all of the things that we're doing right now have importance, have significance, have heft and weight. And, and the Bible is saying, I think, to us here, don't forget that. To live well and to live a life focused on Jesus, that's what you get right now. That's where we are. And the Bible says, then those who have wives should be as though they had none. And that's curious. And especially given what he's already said. As you go back and read chapter 7. Am I to treat my wife as unimportant? Of course not. That's contradictory to other things the Bible says. He's talking, it's hyperbole. Okay, we're familiar with hyperbole. It's like where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate your father and your mother. You can't love me and... So what is he saying? I'm supposed to literally hate my parents? No, because the commandments say what? Love your father and your mother. But he's saying your love for me has to be surpassing. Your love for me has to be so big and full that it's going to inform your love for your parent. It's going to inform your love for everybody else in your, in your life. So... I take what, he's, what Paul writes here to be saying something very similar. I've been reading through Luke's gospel in uh, my own time at home. And Je I was reading where Jesus, a woman cries out in the crowd, and I think she's trying to be magnanimous and, you know, to encourage Jesus. But she says, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. So it's a compliment to Jesus and his, and his mother. But Jesus says... Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. It's kind of the same thing that Paul's saying here. The most important thing that any of us are going to do is love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Get that right. Get that right. 
And then the, the marriage relationship is going to be. But it's also what are we preoccupied with? I think that if I'm preoccupied with God, my marriage is going to come out great. Or it should if I'm a balanced human being. So he, he will show us, you know, he's showing us here the urgency of, that we have to live life with. And he, he says also we have to be mindful of distracting preoccupation. Because he talks about some things here that have a kind of an echo to Ecclesiastes in them when you read them. Because he makes the comment there, he says, look at verse uh, 30. Those who weep should be as though they did not weep. That's odd. Those who rejoice as though they didn't rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. So one thing that I think he's trying to say to us is our pattern of life shouldn't be... Stuck in preoccupation. Does life hurt deeply sometimes? Of course. Does your life feel like you're in a uh, you know, disaster that you wouldn't wish on anyone in terms of loss? And Of course. But I think what he's saying to us is weep and wash your face. Weep and wash your face. Don't get stuck in something that becomes a preoccupation. Even if it's your heartbreak. Weep and wash your face. And serve God. Rejoice, yeah. There are going to be times when we're giddy and happy and blessed. And he says, move on to work. You know, keep in the back of your mind here. That there's a kingdom that's eternal. That we, we're living for something with missionary energy and thought and focus. That goes beyond, you know, some moment of rejoicing. Some moment of weeping. And it, or materialism, because uh, you know he talks about those who uh, own as though they didn't possess. And the next verse, those who use this world is not misusing it. My former pastor, when I the first pastor, second pastor we had after my pastor retired, this person was my pastor. He used to say, you know, we uh, reverse what we're supposed to do. We use people and love things and we're supposed to uh, use things and love people and I think that's what Paul's saying here use things and love people don't get it twisted and uh, messed up so this is he's talking about kingdom mindfulness for everyone thirdly in this passage domestic life kingdom life and married people so he talks about in verse 32 here he says, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things that belong. Your life is simpler if you choose for it to be as a single person. You don't have to say, baby, can I go to this men's thing? You just go. You don't ask anybody. Or, baby, I'm going, you know. You just can, can take off. <laughs> That's the way it works if you're single. If you're married, your life is intertwined with another person's life in a way that you have to be thoughtful and mindful and you have to communicate and interact. And I think this is just what he's saying. Practically, the life of a single person, if they are making good choices, is, is just simpler in, for the sake of God's kingdom. Now, you might fill your life with things God wouldn't approve, but you don't have to. You can choose to use your life of singleness in a way that pleases and honors the Lord. So, 
Married math, Eugene Peterson, uh, in his paraphrase of this, which is excellent, clarifies so much stuff when you go through it. Of course, it's paraphrase, but he he talks about the nuts and bolts of domestic life, married math. You just take your time and divide it by half. That's basically what you do. You have half as much time, but... Does that mean the other half of it is throwaway? No, of course not. The Bible says too much about the richness of what it means to be in a marriage relationship with the person. And he says the same thing in this passage. He's just being practical, I think. But the nuts and bolts of married life are basically you get so many trips around the sun and you factor into all those trips the fact that you're life is involved with another person in a way that is going to reduce the amount of time that is just yours to decide what to do with and of course he's saying above all that the decision of what to do with it is that you ought to be a missionary that's what he says that your life ought to be lived with missionary fervor to share the good news of Jesus with other people, to live your life out among other people in a way that they know you distinctly belong to God. So that's the, you know, the practical part of this. And, then, and he commits, commends us to urgency in either case, married or single. Urgency of living a life that has a focus on God's kingdom and his purposes in the world. When I read the scripture, sometimes I find it's helpful to isolate statements that are in it. And one of the statements that's here in the scripture, look at verse 35. It says that you may serve the Lord without distraction. That you may serve the Lord without distraction. If you just bracket that in and meditate on that, I think you've got a good sense of what the scripture is trying to communicate here is that God's purpose for you is that you serve him without distraction in this one life that you get all right then the fourth aspect of this in verses 36 through 8 are biblical ethics and unmarried people this is plain uh, it's the opposite of what our culture teaches he says, if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his unmarried maiden, if she is past the flower of her youth, here's what I thought when I'm reading this. He's talking about someone who's in a platonic, romantic relationship with somebody. You could do that, conceivably. Platonic, it's not intimate. Uh, romantic, there, it's more than a friendship. That's what he's saying. In fact, it sounds like betrothal. Or engagement. An engagement has happened. These two people are engaged to one another. But it's platonic. But clearly romantic. They're not just friends. There's more than that. And they're trying to decide. Should we get married? Or should we just keep being. In a platonic romantic relationship? That's the question. And so he, he is helping them. To think through. That very question. And he says the same thing he's already said, which is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he says, if you can't find it in yourself to keep this relationship in the, uh, you know, context God could bless and honor, get married. That's what he says. Go ahead and get married. That's what will please God in this set of circumstances that you're in. So even if it limits... 
a person's uh, focus, it's preferable to fornication. That's what he's saying. And so I, I was reading, I like the contemporary standard Bible's treatment of this little section the best because it treats it as though it's talking about betrothed or engaged people. So betrothal is not really a concept that we, you know, it's where I say. You look at the situation, nobody gets betrothed in our society, do they? Nobody sets up some kind of a, you know, not typically in Western situations we get engaged. If he's an honorable young man, he probably will ask the the father, although that's probably considered archaic now. But that's what he's describing is like a situation where these people are trying to think through singleness and married and where they are. And so, but I like the contemporary or the uh, contemporary, the CSB there. Uh, And it's not time bound. He's given us a perspective that's uh, still true. That God says intimacy is only appropriate among the married. That's it. Among man and wife. That's it. So promiscuity unnecessarily complicates a person's life and is invariably a reflection of idolatry. That's what it is. Promiscuity unnecessarily uh, complicates a person's life. Ultimately, when you get underneath it, it's attachment, it's idolatry. It's someone is, has trumped God in your life. I will do with you what God has said I shouldn't. You're more important to me than God. That's what it is in a nutshell. So we can like it or not like it. Society around us can laugh at us for having Victorian, puritanical morals, but that's what the Bible says, and that's all it says. So it's impossible to separate who we are from what we do. What what we do is who we are. And so if I want to please God, my internal life and my practice have to reflect what God says is true about life. That's why he gives us this. And scripture is not subtle on this point at all. The Bible says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's what it says and it's plain and it never says anything different. So what we we have to do is go, why am I living in rebellion? Why am I not doing what God says I should do here? Because it'll distract you from being a missionary if somebody in your life is more important to you than God. It'll distract you from being a missionary. So even in marriage, God is first. And if God isn't first, then our marriage isn't what God intends. So fifthly, lastly, discipleship in the widowed person it speaks to. So this is pretty practical, I would say. A wife is bound by... A law to, as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to, to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord, he says. So we've already covered the exceptions to what it's saying here. Abuse, adultery, abandonment. Because those happen in the Bible. Can, you know, gives us that concession. But it's saying, here's the ideal. The ideal is when you say I do to that person, when you enter into that promise and covenant that you honor that. It's your promise. It's your vow. 
and you and you live that out. And we said before, listen, uh, when a divorce occurs, God uh, doesn't just throw people away. He's not a throwaway God. He loves people, and he uh, comes to us in our brokenness, and he gives grace to us in that. But he's given us his best here. And his best is that we remain committed to the person to whom we made our vows. And unequal marriages, it talks about here, only in the Lord. He's saying what, it, what that means is any single person, uh, single, divorced, widowed, if you're looking for Mrs. Wright or Mr. Wright, the only way they can be Mr. and Mrs. Wright is if they love the Lord more than they love you. That's Mr. and Mrs. Wright for you. They've got to love Jesus more than they love you, and then they'll bless you too. So the kind of questions this passage prompts include, do you see God as important in every facet of your life? Are you concerned about impediments to discipleship? Because that's kind of what it's, you know, I think is underneath this. When you think about the return of Christ, do you view it as a favorable event? You know, if if what's in mind for them is the time is short and Christ could return at any time, is that to you a favorable thing or do you think, oh no, you know, he's messing up my plans for my life? Is your life characterized by urgency for his kingdom so that even if you are married, God's purposes characterize your life and marriage? Is your life as a single person a reflection of someone whose heart is aligned with God's will? Do you think about all your relationships as having kingdom importance? Do you look for God in your everyday affairs? Are your ideas about what life means informed more by culture or by scripture? Is pleasing God behind all that you do? One writer named Paul Gardner said, Christ is the focus and goal of all things and all human activity must reflect this perspective. I think that summarizes this passage Uh, in a very basic way that Christ is life. Christ is your life. And he's calling us to a unique kind of life. And so we're going to have a time of commitment this morning. And uh, as we sing, there may be a need that you have to respond. And as I've said before, you know, uh, me, Cody, the elders you know, that serve this congregation are here to bless you and help you. So if you've got follow-up stuff that you want to talk with us about and we can, you know, bless you and pray with you, that's what we want to do. So let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us and we'll sing. If there's a way that uh, I can pray with you now after the service, then, you know, it would uh, be a privilege to do that. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of Scripture Thank you that it for us 